Welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. We're continuing the series, Spiritual Warfare, based on Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. We battle Satan's strategies with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In today's episode titled Sword of the Spirit, you'll see how to battle Satan using the Word of God. Here's Senior Pastor Perry Duggar. Do you believe? Do you believe that God is a wonder-working God? You know, we, we're dazzled by physical miracles and things are inexplicable. But you know what? The most miraculous thing is when God changes a person's life, transforms that person. And you know what? There are many, many examples of that in this room. Today, we continue our series, Spiritual Warfare. And uh, you can turn back, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning on page 945, the Bible available here. A final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand against all strategies of the devil. And then jump to 14. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet. And then today's focus and today's theme. And take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Roman soldiers carried a small double-edged sword, could be referred to as a dagger, actually. The Greek word was machaira. It was, it varied, but anywhere from 18 to 24 inches long, typically, about two inches wide, but much smaller than the two-handed long broadsword that could be three to four feet in length, and that had a different Greek word. It was a Rophea. Sometimes our English obscures distinctions in Greek. I don't usually think that, you know, you have to know Greek or Hebrew to know what the Bible says because English translations are very good. But sometimes there are some distinctions in Greek that don't appear in English. I'll point to a few of those today, beginning with these two different types of sword. But this small sword was carried in a leather sheath sometimes in a decorated wooden scabbard that was either attached to the soldier's belt or it may have been slung over his shoulder attached to a leather strap. So the blade was short, it was light, and it was used in close hand-to-hand combat. Warriors would spend hours practicing with this smaller knife because when they entered a Afraid, They wanted to be able to inflict blows offensively, but also to deflect an enemy's thrusts defensively. They wanted to use it so much that it became instinctive, almost like an extension of their hand. Now, what's the spiritual meaning of the sword of the spirit? It represents capable use of the Bible or scripture. I use those terms interchangeably. And this sword, the Bible, 
is a believer's best defense against the attacks of Satan. Jesus himself quoted scripture in the wilderness to battle the devil. The devil used the scripture, although he used it in a way that was out of context and misapplied. So what is the meaning of word of God? We've heard that phrase in church. Well, the English word comes from two different Greek words, logos and rhema. You see them on the screen. So there's two different sources. Our theme for today, Ephesians 6, 17, in that passage, Paul did not use logos, which is more commonly found in the scripture. And it refers to the scripture generally, but rather he used rhema, which refers to particular statements with a specific use. Now we believe that all the Bible is inspired written by men who were guided by the Spirit. In fact, the theological word is that these men were superintended by the Spirit. So it is the Word of God, the Logos. But it becomes the rhema of God when it's empowered specifically by the Spirit. Everybody with me? Is this confusing? Two different words, two different applications. Bible verses are transformed into swords for spiritual warfare when the Spirit applies them powerfully, supernaturally, in specific situations. And we call that illumination. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 13 and 14. You can look these up later. You can think of the Bible, the Logos, as a stockpile of weapons. The whole thing is like an, an arsenal or an armory that becomes swords of the spirit, rhema, when it's deployed specifically in combat against the deceit of the enemy. You've had this experience, haven't you? You're familiar with a verse You've read it many, many times. You know what it says. But suddenly, this particular verse pierces your conscience with pervasive, persuasive conviction that changes you. That's the application by the Spirit. Or it could be this way. A verse comes to mind. You may not even be reading the Bible, but you remember this verse. And it comes in a particularly compelling way that gives you strength and resolve to resist Satan. You can look up John 14, 26, John 16, 13. Are y'all tracking with me now? The whole Bible is inspired. But not every verse applies supernaturally to every situation, particularly when tempted in a specific way. Now, we need to use specific scriptural truths to counter satanic lies. So we need to be familiar with the whole Bible. And if we're not, we will fall prey to 
false ideas in our culture and practices that violate the scripture. See, a lot of our culture's phrases sound very persuasive and compelling, but they're crafted to almost trick us. A woman's right to choose what to do with her body. That, that sounds completely right, doesn't it? Until you understand that what it's saying is that means that the child within has no rights. But at first blush, it sounds right. Someone being able to choose their gender. Maybe that's right. Don't they get the freedom to be who they want to be? That, some of that sort of sounds compelling until we understand that scripturally God makes us male and female. And our identity, even our gender identity, is found in him, not in this world. 2 Corinthians 2.11, this is from God's word translation. I don't want Satan to outwit us. After all, we are not ignorant about Satan's scheming. But you have to be really alert. You have to be aware. Because boy, our, our media is putting out a lot of deceptive messages. The sword of the spirit battles Satan's strategies. And I'm going to illustrate his strategies using maybe a passage that you don't associate initially with the temptation of Satan. It's from the parable of the sower and the souls, and it's found in Matthew chapter 13. It's on page 782 in this Bible available here. The background begins at verse three, Matthew 13. Jesus told many stories in the form of parables, such as this one. Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seeds. He scattered them across his field. Some seeds fell on a footpath and the birds came and ate them. Other seeds fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seeds sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow. But the plants soon wilted under the hot sun and since they didn't have deep roots, they died. Other seeds fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants. Satan's first strategy is denying the relevancy of the word. And you see it in the explanation over at verse 19. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message about the kingdom and don't understand it. Then the evil one, who's the evil one? See, you didn't remember that Satan appears in this, in this parable comes and snatches away the seed that was planted in their hearts before it can take root. Satan's forces seek to undermine God's word. And that includes attacking those who teach and preach God's word. And that includes all of us who try to share our story, telling the gospel and our experience with it to others. Snatching away the seed occurs in many ways in our so-called enlightened culture. 
One very common way is that it's really been through all these attacking lawsuits to remove the Bible or any reference to, to the Bible from not only schools, but any public institution. Supposedly as an application of the First Amendment. That's not what the First Amendment says at all. It's actually, it's the First Amendment turned inside out. The First Amendment says that the state cannot establish a church, but it doesn't say that reading the Bible, praying, posting the Ten Commandments in public buildings is a violation of the Constitution. Now, I went to school at a time when we prayed the Lord's Prayer and we read out of the Bible every morning in school. Now, do I think that converted all the kids in elementary school? No. But it did establish an awareness of someone greater than ourselves, a truth, a a guideline for behavior and morality beyond ourselves. And I think it was a good thing. So that was one way that any influence in kids' minds was snatched away. The attempt was don't let these children when they're young hear about God, hear about what God wants from us. Another way, some people including supposed scholars, which many of them whom were false teachers, attack the reliability of the Bible. And these tend to be people with PhDs. They even teach in not only colleges, but seminaries. Suggesting the Bible is a compilation of verbal stories, either made up or adapted from some true events, but altered to fit a particular narrative, or even just copied from other cultures. And this Bible is full of mistakes and contradictions. It's of doubtful authorship. And anyway, all the different stories were just combined by editors. I experienced some seed snatchers in my last year of seminary. I went to a a seminary for two years. Well, I, I went to a Catholic high school, then a Presbyterian seminary, then a Baptist seminary. And at the end of that, I was just left confused. But these professors would speak dishonestly. And they would say things like, no respected scholar believes Moses authored the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. That's not a true statement. But when when said in front of a class who, you know, most people called to ministry, men and women, just grow up in churches. They're not taught academically. So they didn't have an academic background. I had come from another seminary with some very reputable scholars who did embrace the scripture and the Mosaic authorship, for example. But by telling these students, no one existed, it was censorship just like we experience today. So I'd be sitting in class and I'd go, what about, and I'd name one. They'd make another statement. What about 
this one? What about that one? And I don't know how it happened, but I became not that popular with professors on that campus. Leanne can tell you our experiences were not all that attractive at times. And I contacted an attorney that I had practiced with. I didn't practice law that long, but I asked him to fund the purchase of some books on the inspiration of scripture. And he, he bought cases of them and I would hand them out on campus and people would write papers and they'd come to our place and borrow, they'd borrow my books. And they would cite my, my books in their papers and professors were furious. And I, I, I remember walking up to one professor and he had where I had come from in seminary written in red under my name. It, it was not a pleasant experience, but, but it was dishonest. And it was, the intent was to crush the faith of these men and women who were called by God because they're being told the Bible's not reliable. Now they said, oh, but we believe faith and they'd use these broad terms, but you don't have anything to base faith on if you don't have scripture. In reality, there's 23,986 New Testament manuscripts. The earliest one that they found is dated AD 130. The New Testament is overwhelmingly the most authenticated ancient writing. The next is Homer's Iliad, and there's less than 2,000 manuscripts total worldwide. The Bible includes 66 books written by about 40 authors. There's debate about a couple of books over approximately 1,500 years. But the writing is consistent and it shares a common theme, which is God's salvation of humanity. And it also focuses on a central character, which is Jesus Christ, the Savior. And the reason that these books that were written on three different continents can be consistent in their message is because they were all written by the Spirit of God, working through different authors. First Peter 1 21. Now, Satan and his soldiers attacked the inspiration of the Bible because if God isn't the author, then the scripture is irrelevant. It's out of touch. It has no authority over our lives or our morals. Some of these attacks assert that biblical moral standards are outdated because they were formulated by men who were narrow-minded, who were intolerant, who were unenlightened. But if the Holy Spirit is the author, then the Bible is always current and it's constantly applicable to our individual situations. God created people. See, that's one of the reasons to break off um, creation to end creation because it becomes a random occurrence. But that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says God created each one of us individually. His thumbprint is on each one of us. He knows us thoroughly. So he knows what's best for us 
physically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. And that's what's reflected in the Bible's guidelines. Our culture believes that self-expression means that you can just have sex with anyone you want with no previous contact, no follow-up, nothing. And that that's that's an expression of your freedom. That's a fool's behavior. It's dehumanizing, creates depression, breaks up families, damages children. And God knew it all. Because what we thirst for, what's in us is a deep desire to connect. To connect first with God, which determines our identity. And then to connect with just a few other people, one spouse, a family, some parents, later some children, a few friends. And that's where we find security in those relationships. And yet look what our culture says. The great life that we should aspire to is sleep with whoever will slow down long enough for you to do it. It's abhorrent. And it isn't consistent with the way we are wired, the way God made us. 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true. What's implied is and expose what is false. And to make us realize what is wrong in our individual lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Because the scripture is honest, it's accurate, it's current. If it weren't, those two verses would not be true. You know what the greatest evidence of the relevancy of scripture is? The greatest evidence. Come on. Somebody give me something. I can wait a while. Everything in the Bible applies to today. That's true. That is absolutely true. But here's the greatest evidence of the truthfulness of the scripture. A changed life. What else can completely, radically transform you from a self-centered, even immoral, addicted even life into a one that loves God, loves his word, and loves others? The most powerful evidence of the truth of the scripture is sitting in this room. When people are transformed from a life of sin and death to a life of rightness or righteousness and life, that's the greatest evidence. So do you ever ignore the Bible because you consider it outdated or irrelevant? Another strategy of Satan's is disobeying the word word because of problems. 
Matthew 13, back to there. At verse 20. On 783 in this Bible. The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have roots, deep roots, they don't last. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. Now, Satan's not named here. He was in the first example, but he's still behind this. Think about how our culture has moved in an ever more corrupt, ever more immoral, ever more promiscuous manner. That's not because people thought that was the wise thing to do. Satan's compelling, tempting, seducing us into a self-destructive path. The Bible and demons can, according to the Bible, the devil and demons can, according to the Bible, cause problems, illnesses, and pain. And then they torment these troubled people suggesting God doesn't care in order to cause them to fall away. Satanic forces also promote the ridicule of Christians who believe that the gospel's promise of forgiveness of sins is true. They'll even attack the premise that we need forgiveness and doubt sins exist, but also that we believe there's an inheritance of eternal life. And so Christians are often accused of judgmental intolerance for rejecting our culture's embrace of promiscuity, materialism, and self-worship. All of these come from Satan. Our culture does embrace a form of faith. Well, not faith is too definite. Actually, spirituality. But what it, what it consists of is that every person can have their personal view of God. And no one's belief is right and no one's necessarily true and no one's belief is superior to anyone else's. That, that sounds kind of, that maybe that's right. Everybody's equal. Unless it's not right and not true. And clearly, Jesus didn't believe that. Look what he said to the devil. Get out of here, Satan. For the scriptures say you must worship the Lord. Now, when you see four capitals, what does that stand for? Yahweh, Yahweh the personal name of God. So we're not talking about all these other gods. There's one God and this is his name. You must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. See, some of the things that in our culture we believe, oh, this sounds good. Oh, this is embracing everyone. But if it's embracing a lie, it's cruel. And regarding God, there's some specific truths. Having a solid foundation in God's word secures you against attacks from Satan. You know this passage. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. Like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes and torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house and 
that represents trials, troubles, sicknesses, pain, problems, suffering. But even when you encounter that, your house, your life won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. So here's the question. Does personal suffering cause you to fall away from following God's word? That's another strategy of Satan's. A third strategy is discarding the word for the world. Verse 22 from Matthew 13. The seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out. Now, I don't think that's strong enough. I I usually like the New Living, but this passage is not particularly good in my opinion because the Greek word actually means literally strangled or choked. It's, It's more aggressive than crowded out by worries of this life. And worries, I don't think is accurate. I think some of you have a different translation. What does it say? Other than worries. Who said it back there? Deceitfulness. That's accurate. The deceitfulness. See how different that is? Worries of life sounds a whole lot different, doesn't it? The lure of wealth and the lure of wealth, but the lure is better translated the deceitfulness of wealth or the delusion of wealth. The worries of this life is better translated distraction, attentiveness, and the lure is better translated from the Greek deceitfulness and delusion of wealth. So no fruit is produced. See, the problem is we can think of worries. If we have worries, it almost, it's almost a sympathetic um, attitude toward us. We're almost, it's almost portrayed like we're victims. And so there's difficulties in our lives. There's threats we're experiencing. And so we're, we're, we're worried, we're worried. But that's not the thrust of this passage. The thrust of this passage is a voluntary focus on and love for this world. So it's not that I'm worried that something bad might happen to me, it's that I'm focused on what this world has to offer. I'm preoccupied with those things and those things distract me from spiritual matters and prevent me from producing anything of eternal significance in our lives. The person who loves riches and lives as if they were the answer to all his needs and desires or her needs and desires, which is where we come to the lure of wealth. But ultimately, it's a delusion. It's a deceit. Wealth won't solve your problems. Yes, it'll pay your bill, but it won't solve your problems. It's a lie. Satan has fooled this world also into believing that fame should be sought and that will solve insignificance. And you should sacrifice anything else, even your own soul, to attain 
celebrity. You think that's true? Observe the evidence. You look in media, the evidence of Satan's strategy is clear in TVs and movies. It's clear by the way actors and performers are turning ever darker, more sensual, more evil, less moral, more anti-Christian, to, to attract attention. You know, I turned 65 this past week, so maybe, you know, I'm closer to 100 than I am to birth, but I actually remember when you went to a concert because you wanted to listen to that person play the instrument and sing. Anybody remember those days? That person actually played the instrument and sang. Now, that's not enough. Now, it's all this. And that's more important than whether they can sing because some, some of these people cannot sing. They manufacture their song. I mean, in fact, in the world that's out there now, I could be a great vocal celebrity. I got the body for it. All I need is a leotard or something, right? But, but I want you to understand, that's how foolish the world, how deceitful the world we live in is. Because some of these performers can't sing. They correct their voices. You know that, don't you? They produce them and do all this stuff. They could make a singer out of me. When a person wants the world, he or she will forsake the word because they're in direct conflict. Which one are you choosing? You know this passage, we've looked at it numerous times, 1 John 2. Don't love this world, know the things, nor the things it offers you, for when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. The crowd, see, the love of the Father crowds out this love of the world. For the world offers only a craving of physical pleasure, lust of the flesh, a craving for everything we see, lust of the eyes, and pride in our achievements and possessions, the pride of life. And these are not from the Father, they're from the world. And this world is fading away. You know, the celebrities, it's, it's sort of pitiful, isn't it? The celebrities see the world fading away. And man, they are doing everything they can to try to stay in the spotlight. I'll tell you what, I mean, they're now they're, they're shaving off their eyebrows, tightening their faces. I guess it's going to be in vogue with your ears touching the back. <laughs> Along with everything that people crave. It's, it, look how desperate it is. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Are you letting this world choke out the influence of God's word in your life? Here's another memory verse I wanna close with. There, Hebrews four is, is on the bottom of your outline, but 
I might suggest this one. I'm, I really prefer this one. Um, but you could do either one. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Can you handle the word of truth? If you can't, you're in danger of attack. Well, how can I? Well, you want to get started? You want to train with the sword? It starts with reading your Bible. It starts with studying it. You know, pick up a commentary or two. You stop me in the hall. I can tell you, you know, a couple of single volume commentaries that are helpful. Join a small group where you'll be with people that'll help you understand. Because we need to be in training because the culture is not becoming more receptive to us. It's becoming more antagonistic of us. I'm not saying go out there and create battles, but you need to be ready when Satan strikes. Father, you built this church so many years ago. And Lord, I think we've learned to listen to you better in more recent years, maybe than in the, the beginning. So Lord, keep speaking. and Don't take your hand off our church. Lord, we ask that you would use this body to lead many to faith. Lead many to faith. And Lord, teach us that we would know how to use the sword of the Spirit that we would be able to deflect the temptations of Satan that would seem to, seem to destroy the work that we're doing in this community. We praise your son's precious name. Amen. Regularly being in God's word is a way to cultivate good soil in our hearts, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear his voice. Common ways to do this are hearing, reading, studying, memorizing, and meditating. In this week's spiritual practice, make sure to practice your favorite method this week. Choose a method you're less familiar with to try. Ask God to help you grow in learning and applying his word to your life. In our next episode, November 13th, we'll continue the series Spiritual Warfare. To prepare, read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, and 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review so that others can experience how they can have a transformed life in Christ. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.